Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's former senior aide, Gerald Butts, testified before Parliament today. He said the Canadian Prime Minister did not inappropriately pressure former Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Ribo to find a solution to a corruption charge facing engineering giant SNC-Lavalin. Butts described a situation where trust had broken down. The scandal in Canada has led to two cabinet ministers resigning. There are calls for Trudeau to resign himself. Either way, the prime minister is in a fight for his political life with elections looming later this year. With me is Jesse Brown. He's publisher of the Canada Land Podcast Network and co-author of the Canada Land Guide to Canada. Good to talk with you, Jesse. Nice to speak with you too, Jerome. Um. You know, this has seemed like such a kind of a long draw on this scandal. Um, It started with some articles in the Globe and Mail. Can you kind of describe how this unfolded to Canadians? Sure. So Robert Fife, along with two other reporters of the Globe and Mail, and Fife is sort of the senior most uh, political reporter who seems to always have uh, scandalous scoops out of Ottawa, they had this story that very curiously, based on uh, confidential sources uh, in the know in Ottawa, uh, letting Canadians know that this seemingly innocuous cabinet shuffle where the Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould ended up at Veteran Affairs was actually the result of uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould being pressured to basically interfere with uh, the criminal justice system um, for political ends, that she had been facing uh, political pressure from the prime minister's office, from Justin Trudeau's office, and she refused to intervene to benefit this massive engineering firm, SNC-Lavalin, which has extensive ties to the Liberal Party and which has been heavily lobbying the Liberal Party, which is in a ton of trouble. Uh, and the, 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 the case in question is whether or not they should essentially get a slap on the wrist for bribing officials in Libya um, or or if they should face uh, criminal proceedings. And and uh, so the, the story was that the PMO was trying to put a thumb on the scale. Jody Wilson-Raybould refused and as punishment, uh, she was shuffled off. And that's how this all began is that story in the globe. You know, it's interesting because it, when you look at the facts, it sure looks like SNC-Lavalin, you know, did the deed. They bribed millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars with the Libyan regime and um, I, I guess I would want my attorney general to prosecute if if there was a law broken there. They did the deed, it seems, and 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 much more. Um, there, some people said, well, that's just how you do business in Libya, and this involves, uh, you know, your listeners should know, uh, whining and dining and, and spending tens of thousands of dollars on escorts for Gaddafi's child when he was in Canada. Um, but it's not just the Libyan corruption. SNC Lavalin has a terrible history of corruption, including domestically here in Canada, that uh, there was a, you know millions of dollars of bribes paid to get a, a hospital project underway in Montreal. So, uh, you know, their, their, their story is that the, the, C, the CEO of the time is gone. They're too big to fail. Thousands of jobs in Quebec rely on this, and they should, uh, they should be given a soft treatment. But the attorney general is not supposed to make decisions based on political interference. And, you know, it seems like the law was pretty clear on what you should do if you if you are not to consider the national economic interest in deciding whether to offer a deal to these companies. Uh, that's you, you, you. Your hands are tied. You, you should you should charge them. 
Uh, yes, and in fact, it wasn't even her decision. It, she was being pressured to intervene on the deci- on somebody else's decision. So, you know, it, it, it seems on the face of it, and now that we know Jody Wilson-Raybaud's testimony at committee, uh, she she tells of being hounded, uh, as she put it, barraged by, uh, I think, over 20 encounters uh, from various members of uh, of government and, and uh, herself or her people, going up to and including Gerald Butts and Justin Trudeau. Uh, where it was, you know, in no uncertain terms, she was told you must find a solution. After she had made up her mind not to intervene, the hounding continued, uh, and she was explicitly uh, being uh, made aware that there were political implications. There's an election coming up. This is going to affect votes in Quebec. All of that seemed very clear cut when she was before committee last week. Now we have Gerald Butts uh, essentially as as politely and, and as Canadian and friendly a way as possible saying, I'm not calling her a liar, but that's not what happened. And he was saying things like the 20 emails over the course of four months is not a lot. Uh, how do you constitute what is, um, you know, haranguing somebody to, to find a solution and what is not? I mean, it, it, it's a really – I call this a wonderful scandal because all too often scandals are about uh, – you know, here in Canada, the, a personal check from a member of the prime minister's office paid to a senator or somebody caught with some small transgression or a $32 uh, glass of orange juice or something. This is a scandal that's actually about crony capitalism and a system that's probably been in place for a long time. So the two, two schools of thought are, what did you expect? Did you not think that these companies uh, were getting this kind of and, – and, sh- and shouldn't the government protect these jobs and grow up? Um, and then on the other hand, a, a principled stand that there needs to be a clear division. And so, you know, it, 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 it's uh, the government's position that a, a rigorous debate does not equal pressure. They should be and they must be protecting these jobs and making her aware that those jobs hang in, in the balance. But they never directed her, nor did they pressure her. Um, and she says otherwise. Now, of course, following those 20 engagements with her, she lost her job, uh, which they say has nothing to do with the fact that she wouldn't listen to to their constant urgings. Um, so we, 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 we may be left with that kind of subjective analysis of a, he said, she said, uh, was that just a, a, a rigorous conversation or was this, uh, she feels she, she I mean, this is to quote Jody Wilson, Raybould. She said she felt threatened. What's been your conclusion about this? Did you feel like this was a scandal that should threaten the prime minister's, uh, career here? Well, whether I think it should, I definitely think it should in that I think we should be having really substantive conversations about the level of special access and, and uh, treatment that certain companies get and the major corporations and specific corporations that have uh, intricate ties to our political parties. So, you know, in, in, in terms of my moral universe, yes, we absolutely, this should be the kind of thing that scandals break out over and that national debates are held over. My initial feeling when this, when this uh, came to light was that it would not damage Trudeau because it is business as usual in Ottawa. I was very wrong about that. And I think that what I, what I failed to see was how damaging this is to the specific brand that Justin Trudeau has, his specific image that has been so powerful. I'm talking with Jesse Brown. He's publisher of the Canada Land Podcast Network, and we're talking about the scandal with Justin Trudeau. Um, uh, You know, he is a guy who sold himself on uh, a certain brand of saying the right thing, and he's 
charming as all get out and he says the right thing and he's always uh, in the right spot. And now it looks like he um, – you know, I saw one Canadian journalist uh, kind of saying, well, he just looks like a mean, nice guy with influential friends and you know, just an ordinary good-looking BSer in a suit. Yeah, there's a cover story to McLean's, the news magazine here in Canada, and the the title of the cover is The Imposter. And essentially, it's pointing out what I think has been a central contradiction for Justin Trudeau from the start, which is that, as you say, we have this very attractive package, just, uh, you know, and and the attitude, which they called sunny ways, and this fresh face, and this handsome character, um, coming out with uh, gender parity in his cabinet, uh, because it's 2016, is what he said, and... Uh, making indigenous issues and reconciliation with uh, Canada's relationship with indigenous people one of the planks of his platform, a very positive, you know, breath of fresh air, reform, uh, reformist kind of platform. And yet, from the start, it's like, well, sure, but he's a Trudeau, and you couldn't find somebody more entrenched in the Canadian Liberal Party of old. And you know, is this really, you know, if, if our answer to Barack Obama, who was of course a political outsider and and, and an unprecedented uh, figure to to win the presidency. If our answer to that is the son of a former prime minister, how fresh and how much hope and change is, is, is that in a Canadian context? So that from the start was the the contradiction between the appearance and the reality. And then as his government has uh, gone on in really a very short period of time, it has kind of slowly had that facade stripped away from it through a series of uh, embarrassments and m- mini scandals. This one seems to be cutting deepest because I think it cuts to the heart of that contradiction. Jody Wilson-Raybould is not only a female minister, but she is an indigenous woman. And uh, to be at odds with her, to have her and then Jane Philpott, who also just resigned from cabinet, uh, to have these female ministers who were, I think, m- very much a part of his brand, saying that they don't have any confidence in in, in Justin Trudeau to govern. And, uh, and furthermore, describing the kind of seedy machinations of his government that really does hurt him. You know, as someone who checks in kind of uh, occasionally with Canadian politics, you know, the indigenous issue, it seems like he almost uh, started selling out indigenous issues when he he did all the pipeline deals. Uh, It it sounded like they were going to, you know, you may say a lot of nice things about inclusion and and forgiveness and uh, that, but if you're ignoring the things people are saying to you about the issues that confront them you're uh, you're a you're somewhere else you're you're a creature of uh, the insider crony capitalism thing it, it always looked that way from here well it, it fundamentally comes down to uh, a difference between what he says and what he does now what he says is that this has to be a nation to nation relationship with our first nations that they are legitimately nations unto themselves and and if they are then they have some level of sovereignty, especially to what happens to the land. And there is a very, very disastrous history of uh, encroachments upon the land and that having real implications for people who rely on on uh, you know, uh, fishing and hunting and the cleanliness of the water for their very survival. Uh, so if that nation-to-nation uh, understanding only exists if we can come to terms and there's no real veto on the part of bans uh, and uh, – and, uh, uh, nations that that say, you know what, we don't want this pipeline uh, to run across our land, um, then it's just a symbolic gesture. And I think that's that cuts to the heart of, of the Trudeau brand is that, you know, to what degree is this just mere symbolism? And to, to what degree is it legitimate and real? 
I was listening to your Oppo podcast last night with Justin Ling and Jen Gerdson, and uh, they were trying. They were kind of debating what he can do to get out of this, or if he can get out of this. Uh, what he could say. Um, do you have any thoughts on that matter? Because it sounds like just a, you know, I, I've been wrong apology almost gets him so close to resignation that uh, you, you, you can't go there. Well, I'm not the best uh, uh, crystal ball soothsayer, uh, you know, uh, and, and I've, I've been wrong in the past, but I absolutely feel like if, if, they, if they're still gambling on saying this was just a difference of opinion, between what happened between us and Mr. Raybold, and we did nothing wrong. Um, we're, we're now, you know, the, the wheels have come off of that, that narrative. Uh, this is this is the biggest threat to his government, you know, and, and the opposition leader has called for his resignation and his own people are fleeing. So I do feel like there is some level of contrition and reportedly he's, uh, you know, getting a little bit of uh, advice uh, as to whether or not that's the, the right course of action. The, the fact is, he is still probably preferred to Canadians over the conservative leader, Andrew Scheer, who is not terribly popular, and to uh, the, the the further left NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh, who seems uh, to be a bit of a political neophyte. Um, if he were to take some level of culpability, uh, it's, a, it's a tricky thing because he has to make sure that there's nothing he actually has to, you know, to, to, to leave it open for there to be a full public inquiry, uh, for the RCMP perhaps to investigate, which is not, you know, in his purview, but to say, yes, we handled this incorrectly. Uh, mistakes were made, the buck stops here. And, um, you know, even if that means calling a snap election, if I were his strategist, I would say you're better off doing that now than letting this linger and, and fester for months until, until the election this fall. I noticed you, you mentioned he went to for advice and is looking for a little advice from the U.S. ambassador. Is that for real? I mean, that's what uh, Robert Fife and Stephen Chase reported in The Globe, and they haven't been wrong yet. It struck me as pretty strange, too. Because, uh, I mean, granted, the U.S. is good at shuffling uh, scandals around pretty easily these days, but uh, wow. Yeah, I mean, it made me wonder if if Fife and Chase have uh, a microphone in Trudeau's back pocket or something. The, the level of you know of access they seem to have to you know it, it made me wonder if that wasn't in the Globe and Mail on purpose, and if in fact they're not. Uh, that wasn't a balloon set, sent out to test the ideas to whether Canadians are in a very welcoming mood to hear some contrition from Justin Trudeau or not. Well, you know, it seems like Jody Wilson-Raybould and her reputation has skyrocketed in the Liberal Party. Um, is there any chance that the Liberal Party would would toss over Justin for somebody else? I mean, there's there's absolutely been talk about that. And ever since she sat down and, and, and testified, um, I was not the only one to remark that she, she looked pretty damn prime ministerial. Uh, she seemed like a, a, a absolutely had the gravitas of, of, of a first class statesperson. She's a political newcomer as well, um, a career attorney, um, but obviously a person of incredible integrity. Um, we found out today through Gerald Butt's testimony that um, she was offered the uh, in the shuffle the job of uh, the Indian Affairs Ministry, and she turned it down because she has uh, spent her career um, in opposition to the Indian Act, w- the, w- the unfortunately still named Indian Act, which governs all relations between the Canadian government and Indigenous people, and she refused to be the one to administer it against the Indigenous people in Canada. Um, so this is a person who who knows who she is and knows what she stands for. And there's an irony here that typically a person who is as fresh an MP as she would not be the justice minister, but it was because Justin Trudeau wanted to demonstrate not only his gender parity, but to have indigenous members of cabinet 
that that she was given that position before the political system, you know, put her through the ringer. Usually, you know, either she would have learned how to play ball or would would have been tossed out the other side of it. So, you know, she may have been there for appearances, but when you install somebody for appearances, you may have accidentally installed a serious, legitimate person who is going to hold you to account. Well, it's it's fascinating to see what's happened in Canada and fascinating to see what's happened with uh, Justin Trudeau. Thanks a lot for joining us, Jesse Brown, publisher of the Canada Land Podcast Network. He's co-author of Canada Land, the Canada Land Guide to Canada. And uh, we'll keep our eye on what's happening with the scandal in the Liberal Party. Nice speaking with you. Coming up in a few minutes, what it's like for Kashmiris in Kashmir, and then music from the recent Folk International Alliance event in Montreal. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The recent fighting between India and Pakistan drew a lot of attention. What life is like for the people of Kashmir is often invisible, though. We thought we'd spend a few minutes getting a better understanding of what people in Kashmir are seeing happen. With me is Sheikh Salik. He is a Kashmiri journalist who is based in Delhi. His work has appeared in Al Jazeera, the Hindustan Times, and the Huffington Post. Thanks a lot for joining us, Salik. Thank you. I wanted to ask a question, first of all, about what it's been like over generations now for Kashmiris, because this is, um, in the United States, we talk about a forever war with our war with Afghanistan, but the conflict over Kashmir has been generations long now since, since partition. Um, what has this done to, to, to people in Kashmir? Um, so the thing basically is that we can go on and on about uh, seeing the Kashmir crisis started from 1947, that it started from the partition of India and Pakistan. Uh, but what we mostly don't uh, talk about is that almost three to four generations have spent their lifetime getting churned in this crisis. I was born in 1992. I'm 26 right now. And throughout my life, I have seen military crackdowns, human rights violation, draconian laws against people and students alike, and lack of lack of justice with what happens on the ground. Uh, I have seen people getting killed. I have, getting, I have seen people getting maimed, uh, lack of freedom of press, uh, freedom of expression. And whatever that has been happening in, in last 30 odd years since the armed resistance uh, started in the state of Jammu and Kashmir, things have been really, really bad. If you go by the numbers, 
almost 70 to 80,000 civilians have been killed in the last 30 years. And most of them are common Kashmiri civilians who had nothing to do with armed resistance. And why do we suddenly hear Kashmiri news is just because two armed nuclear powers, India and Pakistan, suddenly thought of uh, escalating uh, tensions on the line of control. And that's why we are suddenly talking about the whole issue. But in, in, in between, we all forget about the whole context, the whole history behind why India and Pakistan were at the brink of a nuclear war. And it is the state of Jammu and Kashmir. It is the state where millions and millions of people have been asking for something which both the governments from both the sides of Kashmir, India and Pakistan are not giving them. And that is the idea of self-determination. So we, we need to talk about these issues in terms of why things are really bad in Kashmir. Now, you mentioned the 30-year the, the insurgency and self-governance. And, and it seems like, how do people in Kashmir view uh, India? I was reading some statistics that said that generation of young Kashmiris who are in your age group uh, look at India as an occupying power. And it's really, they don't see themselves as a part of India. It is a occupier. Mm-hmm. See, that uh, is, is a valid argument to make because uh, people of, of my generation, of my age group, they have been born and brought up in this unfortunate conflict which, which has consumed so many lives of innocent people. And I do agree with you that majority of the Kashmiris in the state of Jammu and Kashmir do categorize uh, India's government there as a form of occupation. This also stems from the fact that Kashmir has a very political context to it. So what happened in 1947 is that India and Pakistan were created. But if you look historically, before India and Pakistan were even created, Kashmir itself was a country. But uh, when the partition happened, uh, India took control of Kashmir, it occupied Kashmir, and Pakistan uh, took control of the other half uh, during the war of 1947, which was the first war fought between India and Pakistan. So that part is called Pakistan held Kashmir. This part is called Indian occupied Kashmir. And majority of the Kashmiris are of the opinion that they want independence or most of them also want a merger with Pakistan. And that is something which India and the Indian government has not acknowledged in the last 75 years. You mentioned getting to self-governance and some kind of self-representation. And mm-hmm. I don't think most people here think, they think, well, well, Kashmir is a state. It has a legislature. It has uh, maybe people are the governor of Kashmir. There's, there's people governing. Uh, what is that like? Kashmir has its own legislature, uh, it has its own uh, state government, but we also need to understand that Kashmir is a very small state. Uh, Most of its laws are being governed by the New Delhi, which is the capital of India, the main government which is formed at the center of India. And uh, most of the laws uh, are being are being uh, taken care from that. And most of the Kashmiris are of the opinion that whenever there is a state government in Kashmir, it is kind of a puppet of the Indian government. So whatever Indian government tells it to do, uh, state government does. And most of the Kashmiris also are of the opinion that these state-level ministers or leaders, they are not the real representatives of the Kashmiri aspiration. Uh, That's why you have uh, organizations like Hurriyat, which is a separatist organization, which believes in the idea of independence and also believes in the idea of merger with Pakistan. And if you talk to a lot of people on the ground, majority of them would say that uh, these separatists, uh, these leaders who 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 are part of the peaceful uh, uh, movement on the ground or the armed movement also, they are the real representatives of Kashmir. And also, if we talk about current situation, we don't have a state government right now. We have a governor who has been planted from New Delhi in Kashmir. 
there is no democratically elected state government in Kashmir from last seven to eight months. Kashmir right now is under president's rule. So if you talk in terms of democracy, there is lack of democracy there. You don't have a democratically elected government there. I'm talking with Sheikh Salik. He is a Kashmiri journalist based in Delhi, and we're talking about what people think about in Kashmir, about the conflict that's been going on. Uh, I wanted to ask about the militant groups in Kashmir. When you read about their numbers, they seem very small. I mean, they're they're consistently getting killed, and there seems to be an uptick in uh, the number of Kashmiris who are interested in the armed groups. But whenever there's a funeral of an armed resistance fighter, it seems to draw thousands of people. Can you explain a little what's going on with these people and what they represent? Before we start talking about what is happening on the ground in terms of militancy and uh, militant funerals, we might have to go a little back uh, to 1990 when the armed resistance started. So at that time, a lot of Kashmiri youngsters crossed into Pakistan and they, they, they trained themselves and came back to Kashmir to fight a war against the Indian forces. Now, at that time, uh, a lot of lots and lots of Kashmir youngsters went there. And subsequently, when they came back to Kashmir to fight as guerrillas or rebels or militants, as we would like to call them, uh, most of them were killed in the process. But if you see what has been happening after 2014, is that more and more Kashmir youngsters, although their numbers are very less, but most of them are local militants and they're very young from the age group of 18 to 25. Now, we might also say that, that these numbers are very less right now. But if you go by the numbers of Ministry of Home Affairs in, 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 in India, they put the numbers around 500. If you go by the proper data, in 2014, almost 110 militants were killed in Jammu and Kashmir. And then in 2015, the numbers rose to 113. In 2016, the numbers rose to 165. And that was the time when this popular militant leader called Burhan Wani, who was a postal boy of militancy in Kashmir, was killed, which resulted into a mass movement of four to five months in Kashmir in which almost 120 civilians were also killed. And that was the time when pellet gun was used against Kashmiris, which resulted in thousands and thousands of Kashmiris getting blinded and maimed. And that was the time when the uptick in violence started. In 2017, you will see 218 militants were killed. In 2018, you saw 270 militants killed. And in the just first two months of 2019, you have almost 60 militant deaths. So now the idea is that when a young Kashmiri local militant gets killed, Thousands and thousands of Kashmiris take part in, in, in his funeral. And that's when emotions run very high. His friends, uh, people who have known him, there are strong chances that they also start picking up guns. They also start going towards violence. That was the case with Adil Dar, who was the suicide bomber in the recent Pulwama attack in which 44 armed men were killed. If you go into the context of what happened to him he, before he joined the militancy ranks in 2018, uh, Indian armed forces tried to burn his house. So so all this stems from the violence that is happening on the ground. All this stems from the violence which is being meted to the Kashmiris on the ground. And that's where people start having that anger inside them. And that anger translates during the militant funerals. That anger also translates when these young militants pick up guns without training themselves. We have to understand that most of these youngsters who pick up guns, they're not trained. They don't cross into Pakistan like Kashmir is used to cross into 1990 because the li line of control right now, it's heavily guarded. So what, what they do is that most of these youngsters, they snatch weapons from Indian armed forces or the Jammu and Kashmir police. And then they hide in woods and forests and they train themselves there and, and they become militants. And we also need to understand that their lifespan 
is, is according to a lot of research and a lot of studies on the ground, their life spans only six to eight months. So within six to eight months, these young militants, they get killed. And the cycle repeats. Their friends, their, look, their people who know them, people who take participate in their funeral, they pick up the guns. So this is a very vicious cycle, which, which is on a repeat from the last five to six years. If the Modi government in India uh, looks at this situation, I imagine they want, you know, not to grant more autonomy or anything. They, they, they want to crack down harder. What would that kind of thing look like? Modi's uh, hardcore, hard-fisted policy, uh, where you just go against the local population, you start this very hard crackdown against Kashmiri civilians, it has completely failed. Even after the Pulwama attack, the government of India banned this religious uh, organization called Jamaat-e-Islami. Uh, so the idea was basically that Jama- the, the government claims that Jamaat-e-Islami is the moderate wing of these militants. It is a religious organization which gives economical and social support to these militant groups. And you can see uh, a lot of imprints of this uh, iron-fisted policy in terms of freedom of speech, in terms of freedom of movement, in terms of freedom of expression also. Lots of journalists who started writing about human rights violation in the last five years a lot of them have been arrested. A lot of them have been intimidated. A lot of them have been harassed. Uh, whenever there's a gunfight and, and a Kashmiri journalist go to cover there, they're being beaten. The families of these militants who have nothing to do with whatever their sons are doing, they are being harassed. They are being beaten. During an encounter when a militant is killed, the house is being raised down to the ground. So this is all part of the Narendra Modi government's iron-fisted policy, which apparently is failing on the ground. Although they have been uh, successful in killing a lot of militants, but uh, the anger and the resentment on the ground is, is, is just increasing day by day. I'm talking with Sheikh Salik. He is a Kashmiri journalist based in Delhi, and we're talking about the things that are happening in Kashmir. Uh, what's it like for you in Delhi when something like the recent attack on security forces happened? I was reading accounts. Uh, there was an editorial in the New York Times that said a Kashmiri journalist in Delhi had his house surrounded by and an angry mob, and people were yelling and screaming, and uh, he thought uh, he was in some big trouble. Um, honestly, this is not new for Kashmiris like me. Uh, there are thousands of Kashmiris living in different parts of India, uh, mostly in the capital city of Delhi. This is not new for them. Uh, it's just that the news has started to surface after the Pulwama attack, when the anger of Indian citizens started uh, surfacing against Kashmiris, where a lot of Kashmiris were beaten in different colleges, in different unions universities in India, uh, a lot of Kashmiri businessmen, traders, travelers, they were beaten up. Uh, but as far as Kashmiris are concerned, who live outside Kashmir, who live in Delhi, our hearts and minds have always remained occupied in terms of what is happening in Kashmir. Because I'll be very honest in terms of, as, as, as a common uh, Kashmiri, whenever we wake up in the morning, we open our phones, our laptops, our social media, all we see is people getting killed there. That has taken a mental toll on a lot of Kashmiris who are in Delhi. And it's a very sad state of affairs that given that a lot of people are in Delhi and they can't do anything about it. And uh, the moment you start talking about these things on social media, uh, or through journalism or through any kinds of means of communication, art or any other things, there is some sort of crackdown on that also. A lot of Kashmiris who put forward their views in terms of human rights violation in Kashmir on their social media platforms, their posts were taken down. Uh, there were sedition cases uh, against a lot of Kashmiris saying that, oh, you posted something in terms of Kashmir where you criticize the Indian government or the Indian armed forces. So this sort of crackdown not only happens on the ground in Kashmir, it also happens on different levels where a lot of Kashmiris who are living outside Kashmir feel very violated. They also feel very 
uh, scared in terms of what is happening uh, back in their in, in their state. Do Kashmiris have uh, international connections that would help the situation, whether it's human rights organizations, um, Kashmiri expatriates in the West? Uh, do, do those connections exist or are most of the connections uh, in, in Pakistan or, or, so, or somewhere else? There are a lot of supporters, activists and journalists who have been talking about the Kashmiri cause uh, since a long, long time, if we just go back a year, in 2018, Human Rights Watch came up with this very important report on the human rights violation in Kashmir, uh, where they mentioned that the Indian government should work with the Human Rights Council members uh, and countries to create an independent international investigation that would comprehensively examine uh, allegations of serious human rights violation in Jammu and Kashmir. And they wanted access to, to, to both the parts of Kashmir in India and Pakistan. Pakistan said that you are welcome. Please come here and see what is happening on the ground. Uh, Indian government never gave any, any permission to, to a Human Rights Watch uh, to come and conclude, uh, to, to start their investigations uh, or observations on the ground. Same is the case in terms of a lot of foreign journalists are, are, are not being allowed to come to Kashmir. So a lot of people outside uh, India or a lot of people outside South Asia wouldn't know about what is happening in Kashmir. That's why I would really want to come back with the whole point where uh, international media, New York Times, Washington Post, Guardian, Reuters, they have been talking about India and Pakistan from last uh, two weeks, but nobody's actually going behind the context of it. Why was India and Pakistan at the brink of a nuclear war? It was because of this unsolved dispute of 1947. It is this whole issue, a political issue, which, which, which needs a solution. Uh, Kashmir is an idea whose, whose time, I believe, has come. And Kashmiris have already given a referendum through their blood. It, it actually is very sad that whenever things escalate to a level where two nuclear countries are in use, that's when we start talking about Kashmir. Nobody bats an eyelid when gross human rights violations happen in Kashmir on a daily basis. Sheikh Salik is a uh, Kashmiri journalist based in Delhi. His works appeared in Al Jazeera, the Hindustan Times, and the Huffington Post. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about what Kashmir is like for Kashmiris. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Coming up after the break, we'll have Global Notes, our look at international music, and we'll discuss the Folk Alliance International Conference. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music. With me is Catalina Maria Johnson, the host and producer of Beat Latino on Vocalo. She is a culture writer. Great to see you. Hey, Jerome. Great to be back. Now, um, you recently attended the Folk Alliance International Conference. Tell us about this Indeed, thing. Indeed, in Montreal. So uh, it switches uh, sites, often in Kansas City, which is where it's uh, headquartered, uh, in Montreal, a former headquarters, and the next year, New, Orle- New Orleans. i got to mention that. That's the fun uh, stuff. So it was in um, thousands of delegates from the folk 
music world, which has now grown to encompass quite a bit more than what we used to think of. It's way more than banjos, or there's very different kinds of people playing the banjos. So it's a beautiful um, space to check out that scene, but for me, to check out the international and indigenous side of the folk scene. Well, it sounds like you saw some fascinating stuff, and um, there's something called Mission Songs Project, and it sounds like uh, something that people should know about. This was uh, an amazing discovery as part of the—there was the first Indigenous Music Summit— at the Folk Alliance International Congress. And there was also a series of indigenous music showcases. And uh, this was from that showcase. It's Jesse Lloyd and the Missions Songs Project from Australia, but from um, the missions and settlements where what they call the stolen generation, Aboriginal and indigenous children were separated from their families and uh, others moved from very different parts to very different rooted uh, indigenous tribes and peoples to uh, Palm Island and to mission settlements and uh, evangelized. And so again, part of that history, which is very hard for me to, to fathom of uh, ripping families apart, <laughs> but uh, certainly was happening in those times. And she's l- researched the music of the missions. And this one, in fact, was written by her grandfather, and it's called Our Native Land. Oh, give me a land Where I may roam Where no others would build And call it their home Where men of one color Together would live And would feel no ill their own native land Oh superiority is an unknown word to me We lived in peace together with me simple and kind folks I never knew that I would be One day a foreigner slave So make this last plea Please give me my own native land That's Jessie Lloyd and the Mission Songs Project, and that is a song written by her grandfather. Uh, It's kind of a hard song to listen to. These things are... um, I don't know how we should think about these things these days. It's hard to think about these things uh, these days. But I love music like this that sheds a light on a period that we need to think about (laughs) these days. Yep. And the next artist is kind of in that same vein, also from uh, the indigenous music artists, the indigenous musicians, and also from Australia, from a different part. Um, This is Emily Wurramura, and this album is called Miljakpura. And again, she's uh, singing in her language as well as English, kind of a, in her community. She said women didn't sing a lot, so she were not allowed to sing always. So she is uh, bringing that to the foreground too, and sharing the light um, of this these peoples that 
before uh, the Dutch came and gave new names to their spaces, um, had uh, traded on the seas. And so the stories of those peoples shared in um, Emily Uramura's song. So let's hear Turtle's song, Yimenda Papagunerai. turtle song that is just lovely as can be yeah it's a really delightful music um and in in this case uh sharing the stories of uh some of the islands off of australia including grut island but that's uh, not in the anindilyakwa language which is what we're hearing um her people and again part of the indigenous musicians at the folk alliance international congress in montreal recently their annual congress really um, there's, of course, lots of classic traditional folk music, lots of fiddles, lots of banjos, lots of what you kind of uh, normally consider folk. But there's a very direct effort to encompass as truly Folk Alliance International, an international folk group would do, to encompass um, a much wider definition of folk music. I noticed that... Um on Facebook, you were sitting in the bed where John Lennon and Yoko Ono had their bed in for peace. I certainly was. Now, that was in Montreal, and they spent a week in bed. They were recorded Give Peace a Chance there. That's true, and that's a sweet 1742 at the Fairmont Queen Elizabeth, and that was the hotel that the Folk Alliance International was held at. Wait, is it like a museum hotel well, room actually, or something? actually, this is how, okay, I have to get through this story quickly, but there was the the opportunity to do a photo op in the John and Lennon and Yoko Ono suite, and it was the only opportunity to see it, and it was very reasonably priced, so I took that opportunity, <laughs> <laughs> and I sat on the bed, and I there was a prop for a guitar, and I uh, I intoned "Give Peace a Chance," and uh, just was in that space. It felt wonderful. All right, if you follow Catalina Maria Johnson on social media, these are the kind of things you can be getting. Uh, you can be going right into the "Give Peace a Chance" bed, uh, Catalina Maria. Day yeah, they had to kick you... me out after my 20 minutes. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> um, 
That's that's a really fun thing to do. Um, let's jump over to another artist. We are going uh, wow. Egypt to is Egypt, next. right? Um, th- this was uh, an artist that showcased a few years ago at a Folk Alliance International. Was back this year. Um, Rami Assam, um, a young artist who's known as the the voice of Tahir Square. He uh, and he's in exile. He lives and has lived in exile for several years from Egypt during the Egyptian Spring. Uh, played uh, songs. In Tahrir Square, that kind of went viral and became the image and the musical image. And in fact, I uh, before we hear Rami, one of the things that he mentioned and that I'd like to mention, uh, he mentioned in his showcase was that the poet that has composed many of the lyrics of his songs, Galal El Bechairi, an Egyptian poet and collaborator, is in jail serving a three-year sentence for some of those lyrics and poems. So this is Rami Assam again. Uh, uh, at the Folk Alliance International. Fahdim barak lazim ta'ani Tifid karantak bikullil ma'ani وتحرق في دمك سنين مش ثواني واوعى تصدق كلام الاغاني بتاع الحضاره وكان يوماني ده كله هجايص ما يدخل وداني في عهد مبارك العذب بيناديك بتبدا في يومك حاجات بترزيك بنومك في قومك تعكنن عليك ضيقك ولسه العمص في عينيك مفيش ميه تشطف صابونه في ايديك وجسمك ملزق وريحتك عديك Rami Assam from Egypt. He was at the Folk Alliance International Conference, and I certainly hope his lyricist gets out of prison in Egypt. I was heartened to see that Shaw Khan, a photographer we've done segments on in the past on Worldview, got out of prison in Egypt after five years, so people do come out. I hope so. I hope so, because uh, Galal El Bahari was uh, detained on March 3rd, 2018, after writing the lyrics to Rami Assam's most recent single and publishing a new book of poetry. So, um, yeah, this is what happens when you go to the Folk Alliance International. Um, this kind of, these, these, this music that has so much deep-rooted background uh, is fascinating. Next, we're going to a place uh, in the Caribbean, Granada. And north, uh, Toronto and Granada. Granada. Yeah, this is another uh, artist from that uh, um, Afro-diaspora, which gets intertwined with so many interesting musical threads. This is Kaya Cater, and she's actually been here to Old Town. I I found out after I saw her in Montreal. But uh, she is an artist that is Grenadian and Canadian and also studied, uh, I believe it was in West Virginia. I mean, a main banjo player, but again, mixing it with uh, her own uh, Grenadian background. And a beautiful presence, beautiful voice. I think uh, Kaya Kater put on your radar. I think you're gonna gonna hear a lot more from from her. And this is La Misère. Comment joue le violon? La misère avec la voix émue. 
La misère. And I know I know you. La misère. And I know you know me. La misère. Je dis pour moi ça y est. Oh comme elle est grave la misère. Je dis pour moi ça y est. Oh comme elle est grave la misère. Avec le pied cassé. La misère. Avec l'âme élevée. La misère. And I know I know you. La misère. And I know you know me. La misère. Je dis pour moi ça y est. Oh comme elle est grave la misère. Je dis pour moi ça y est. Oh comme elle est grave la misère. Comment joue le violon La misère Avec la voix émue La misère And I know I know you La misère And I know you know me La misère Je dis pour moi ça y est Oh comme elle est grave la misère And that's Kaya Cater and uh, music from the Folk Alliance International Conference. Uh, that was lovely. This is very lovely. Uh, so much of the music is lovely. I mean, the, the, the folk world is, is, a, is a wonderful place to spend a few days. <laughs> um, well, that's great. Catalina Maria Johnson out there at the Folk Alliance International Conference, next going to South by Southwest, a, a biggie. Oh, wow. I can't wait. I can't wait. There's going to be so much. The international scene at South by has really exploded. Sounds from Peru, sounds from Colombia, sounds from Chile, Global Fest, Womex, everybody doing a showcase, all Latino. I mean, I don't know how I'm going to, you know, the Saints used to be two places at once, and I need that. <laughs> Catalina Maria Jensen, I look forward to seeing you in a couple weeks again on Global Notes. Well, if you're looking for a good way to find some music and you cannot go to South by Southwest or Folk Alliance International, we have an idea for you. We're giving away four pairs of tickets right now to a night of Latin jazz at Symphony Center this Friday night, and they could be yours. If you want a pair of tickets, you need to hurry over to our new Facebook group. It's not the page uh, WBEZ Worldview. It's the group. It's called WBEZ Worldview Community. And you join the group and you comment on the post that's there about the tickets. And we'll select four random people who comment in the next hour to get a free pair of tickets. You get to see the Cuban musical masters Alfredo Rodriguez and Pedrito Martinez this uh, Friday night. And that is all yours if you go to join WBEZ Worldview Community and uh, comment there on the post. And by the and by the way, we've featured. We featured Alfredo and Pedrito just a few weeks ago on Worldview. So you, if you stay tuned to Global Notes, you'll, you'll find out about this way before everybody else is talking about it. They were good. And you can see them uh, Friday night at Symphony Center. Also, tomorrow you're going to be hearing about Nature's Little Recyclers. It's a, a, a program of composters that are in jeopardy of being shut down by the city of Chicago. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine provided production assistance. And Mike Gilmore engineered today's show. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.